Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 6 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is the Declaration and Stance of Metropolitan Sergius, so-called Sergianism. This podcast was originally recorded in June of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to this series on the New Martyrs uh, and the Catacomb Church. This is Lesson 6, Lesson 6 of our 10-week course, Russia's New Martyrs, the Catacomb Church, a type of the end times. And tonight we're going to be addressing the famous or infamous Declaration and Stance of Metropolitan Sergius. And this will be a very interesting lesson, I think, for everyone. This will be the first of two parts. Tonight we'll be addressing basically the historical uh, events and a little bit about the reaction, but mostly next week we'll get into the Orthodox uh, reaction by the new martyrs, the future new martyrs and the confessors of the faith, how they reacted to the stance that Metropolitan Sergius took. Uh, and so tonight we're going to be spending most of our time just getting a good handle on what happened, what he said. We're going to look at the whole declaration. That's something that doesn't really happen because there's just an excerpt that most people talk about. We'll, we'll look at the whole declaration. We'll read the whole thing. We'll look at a whole response and discussion from one of the dioceses. So we'll get a little more uh, hands-on and and look at you know what was going on right around the declaration. Then next week we'll address or present rather the many responses immediately and over the next couple of years uh, to uh, the stance that Metropolitan Sergius uh, maintained for the rest of his life. So let's get into it. Let's say our prayers, and we'll begin with a look a little bit at the man, Metropolitan Sergius, and then at the document. So we'll say our prayers and begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind. With the pure light of the divine knowledge, open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the, the fear of thy blessed commandments that trample down all kind of desires we may have upon a spiritual matter of living, both thinking and doing such things are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and all holy good and life creating spirit, will now endeavor unto ages of ages. Amen. Elogito si Cristo, si mon, o pan sofus, 
Amen. Yesterday in Russia, today in America, the decoration of Metropolitan Decoration and Stance of Metropolitan Sergius and the so-called Sergianism, the stance, gave, the name given by many for the stance maintained, not just the declaration, but the whole stance maintained by Metropolitan Sergius, who was the deputy locum tenens. We'll talk about his position in a minute. So this is 1927. And to get a little historical perspective on the man and also the little bit about leading up to there's so much material out there. First of all, let me say a few things, a little housekeeping, which is important for newcomers, uh, that this is uh, one of two lectures we do every week. So we also have the question and answer sessions that happen over on Crowdcast among our uh, uh, patrons, those who are our supporters, who, who also come for the lectures and the material that we present there. So if you're interested in diving deeper and getting answers to your questions and also uh, obtaining more material that we post there, the PDFs that we that you see here tonight are available there. Join us over there at Patreon and uh, Crowdcast. Uh, and basically, it's whatever you want. Just just uh, don't donate whatever you like, even just $1 a month. It doesn't matter. Come over there and join us. And so that's... Uh, my uh, my public announcement for the night, and then let's get back to the uh, the question and answer. So there's so there's so much material that exists, and I've just been amazed at the uh, amount of uh, historical research and, and and time that's gone into it, and uh, and it's been overwhelming to try to reach it all and to present it to you because this is an introductory course. Obviously, right? We're not going to be able to get into in depth into many many details which are necessary if you want a thorough understanding of the subject matter. So our attempt here is to give you the high points, the most important points uh, about the, the matters so that you can get the, the, the basics, at least, from our course. Uh, but I do suggest if you're, uh, you're uh, interested in history and theology and, and you really want to understand deeply that you dive into the text that exists, and I've been uh, discovering more and more online. Uh, unfortunately, it, it seems to me, although I've, I've not been researching this for decades, obviously, uh, that um, there's a lot of material that's out of print and not very, very easily accessible. But it is uh, so a lot of it is accessible online in PDF. So that's the the good news. Uh, we'll be posting that in Patreon. Uh, some of that uh, those links. Uh, that are um, especially important for proper understanding of all these events, uh, especially going forward now from 27 on. This is where things get really uh, interesting, but also complicated and difficult uh, to. There's a lot of easy and quick uh, conclusions made 
which I don't know if they always uh, help the truth, uh, because the truth is usually much more nuanced and not a slogan. So I think that um, what what my aim here is, uh, as much as I can in the introductory course, is to give the uh, to get into the mind of Christ and also to thoroughly understand and discern the spirits, uh, which means the ideologies, the ideas, and also the the stances taken in in Russian church history for our benefit today. So we're trying to take what we can from the saints and the experience of the church, apply it to today, and therefore be benefited uh, by the uh, the saints with. Uh, wisdom and not simply uh you know run on uh polemics or 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 reactions which are not usually very um upbuilding for the church so let's thoroughly understand let's be sympathetic to people who are god help us if we're in the situation that they were put in um very difficult situation very difficult days I think everyone has to be sympathetic. It doesn't mean we agree. It doesn't mean that we endorse always. But we certainly have to be sympathetic in the sense of, uh, you know, suffering with those who suffered, but also with those who apostatize because they're uh, lost uh, to the truth and therefore to Christ. And that's a tragedy. So let's look at Metropolitan Church just a bit, just a, just a bit, not a whole lot of material right now. Uh, on his life, but just to give a sense of who we're talking about, obviously it's very important to know the man who has done this, who has issued this declaration, which is so, uh, which was so problematic and divisive in the life of the Russian church. He was born in the town of Arzamas uh, in Nizhny Novgorod in a deeply religious family of an archpriest. He was named Sergius after becoming a monk. He studied in Nizhny Novgorod Seminary and later in St. Petersburg Theological Academy. In 1890, he was sent with an Orthodox Christian mission to Japan and became fluent in Japanese. He already knew Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Uh, so he was very much in, academically inclined and uh, I think was well known for his uh, academic uh, uh, offerings and his texts that he produced during his time at the academy. In 1899, he returned to St. Petersburg Theological Academy and was appointed its rector. In 1901, uh, Sergius was consecrated Bishop of Jamburg, the vicar of St. Petersburg Diocese. In 1905, Sergius was appointed the Archbishop of Vyborg and all Finland. And then in 1911, he became a member of the Russian Holy Synod. And on August 10, 1917, was transferred to the see of Vladimir and Shula, and on November 20th, the same year, Patriarch Tikhon elevated him to the rank of Metropolitan Bishop. The Bolsheviks arrested him in January of 21, and after months in jail, he was exiled from Moscow to Nizhny Novgorod. In July of 22 now, so a year and six months later, uh, and from that point to 27th of August, he of 23, so a year and a month, he was in apostasy and went over to the living church or the renovationist schism, which is a very important detail. I think that's extremely important to understand uh, because in the spiritual life, 
when someone, when we give rights to the enemy, when we apostatize, when we fall into grave sins, when we uh, depart from the narrow path and we give rights to the, even on a, on a noetic level, on a, on a basic level of spiritual life, on a daily level, there's all these spiritual principles and spiritual laws that are at work. So when we do that, we essentially have to dig ourselves out through deep repentance, uh, a sincere and deep repentance. And um, the church in this case, as they would with anyone who's a neophyte, for instance, they would not elevate them to a position of authority because obviously there is a, a lot of spiritual work that needs to be done. So he did apostatize to this uh, schism, and he repented, however, after a year and a, and a month, and he was forgiven and received back by Patriarch Tikhon in 1923. He was appointed the Metropolitan of Novgorod on the 20, in, in 1924, March 18th. So it gives you a little bit of the background before we get into the, the important years of the uh, post-Tikhon, after the repose of St. Tikhon, uh, when things become very confused. So let's look at just a few things on the timeline of events. There's so much going on, but this should uh, help us a little bit to orient where we are. So remember, we have the Renovationist Schism, the Renovationist Schism from 22 on by 27 and the Declaration of Sergius. It still had 16.6% of the total of the country's total number of parishes, which was very much de 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 decreased from its height in 23. So, but it still is around, it still is a presence. In 25, after the repose of St. Tikhon, the uh, secret police uh, help initiate a new schism, uh, not anything like the renovation schism, it was more simply about a power grab and administrative questions, but there was a schism that was resisted by actually Metropolitan Sergius and other bishops. Uh, they were very strict, and they resisted it, and they was largely withstood the threat of the Gregorian schism. We mentioned that in the past uh, lecture, uh, but you also have to have that in mind in twenty five. So now we have two schisms that exist, and and we know during this whole period that the secret police are trying their best to divide the church, to destroy the church, to undermine the church. They're find they're trying to find a. Uh, a a methodology key which will open the door to uh, the disintegration of the church essentially and the division of the church this is so obviously diabolical so you know another lesson here for us would be that it doesn't matter so much it's a secondary frankly in many of these cases it is today with uh the things we're facing with the a uh, whole uh, demonic spirit of the world that is behind uh, so many of the lies and, and distortions in this whole COVID uh, project, uh, f which is now in the stage of the mass vaccination. Uh, we see uh, that if you look at the methodology, look at, first of all, the fear that is used then and now uh, to get a massive change in society to get a program through, which is which is top down, which is which is driven by uh, a small elite, as it was then among the Bolsheviks. They were 
using intimidation, threats, exile, prison, murder, execution, all of the methodology of the enemy. It was fear, but mostly fear is what they used with threats to get people to do what they wanted them to do and to destroy the unity of the people uh, and, and, to, and to subjugate them. So these are, there's constant arrests that hinder the creation of a stable canonical center after the repose of St. Tika. Essentially, they're, there's not, they're not able to, to, to have a council to elect a new patriarch. And so Patriarch Tikhon uh, wisely uh, appointed uh, a locum tenens, but also deputy locum tenens. So in a case that the locum tenens, the locum tenens is basically the one who's in the place of the patriarch until an election. All right? So it's a temporary position. And there were deputy locum tenens. So in the case that that bishop was exiled or murdered or whatever it might have been, there were immediately already two other people ready to step in. In fact, there were many more. There were 13 patriarchal deputies and local tenants during this period, 12 of whom, by 1927, were in exile or in prison. And of course, that was not an accident. So the secret police is trying their best to, one by one, pick off all of the talented and faithful uh, bishops who would be able to lead the church, and they're willing down to as few as possible. And the one that's not in exile or in prison, Archbishop Seraphim of Uglitch, who was a notable and became a new martyr, was so uh, little known at that point, he was a younger bishop, that many people had never even heard of him. So even the one who was to take the position, in the case of uh, uh, the exile of Metropolitan Peter, who was the locum tenens, uh, he uh, was so... Uh, unhe unheard of. And, and the so at this point, at the end of 27, the secret police are on, in, in terms of the leadership and in terms of, of, of a, a canonical center, uh, they're, they're, six, they're making great strides in, in liquidating uh, the possibility, liquidating the bishops who would be able to lead the church. On, in tw on uh, April 12th of 1925, we have the uh, this, the assuming of the locum tenens by Metropolitan Peter, uh, that's after the repose, sometime after the repose of, of, uh, of St. Tikhon. And then in December of, this, of the same year, he is arrested. And so now we have only Metropolitan Sergei uh, to take over as the deputy locum tenens. And so he's basically alone in terms of... Uh, what had been established as the successors to uh, Patriarch Tikhon. He's the deputy locum tenens from 25, the end of 25, December, to, to sometime in 26. Uh, and then in November of 26, so less than a year later, he is arrested and imprisoned. From 26, uh, from November 30th of 1926, to March 27th of 1927. So that is four or five months. He's in prison. And during this time, he is interrogated, of course, and he's now negotiating. He's entering negotiations. So the secret police have found their man who's going to negotiate and to work out some kind of compromise uh, so that they can uh, control the church. 
until 1977. Reading from a very interesting article entitled "The Russian Orthodox Church versus the State: The Josephine Josephine Movement or the Josephite Movement, 1927-1940." This is a, an, exa an examination of the years from after the uh, declaration and the response and the reaction of uh, Metropolitan Joseph, which we'll see a bit tonight, but mostly next week. We'll look at Metropolitan Joseph. Until 1927, government attempts to control the Orthodox Church to make it into an uh, adjunct of the state apparatus. Look at that, that. That expression is very interesting and important. An adjunct of the state apparatus. Right? So total control. We want a, a servile hierarchy. Now think about what's going on in the church today. Think about how much uh, in terms of this, this uh, power grab in many states and countries around the world throughout their society, but including the Orthodox churches. We can see that in the Church of Greece, for instance. We have had almost zero maybe a bit, but almost zero re rejection of the state program for closing down churches and enforcing all kinds of measures within the church life. Um, so although it is a certainly not a kind of persecution that the church saw in the 20s, no, there's no doubt about that, but the spirit is important. And if, if a if the state is able to achieve its goals without bloodshed, of course, that's preferable, right? Bloodshed comes about because there's resistance. So if there's no resistance and people go along, well, there's no need for the bloodshed. Um, of course, depending on what kind of degree of destruction we want, they want a total destruction in the 20s. Now, as one very famous uh, cleric in Athens, who was a leader in the fight against the various heresies and delusions of the of that, in, that had encroached in the Church of Greece, said, "He said today the devil doesn't want to destroy the church. He wants he doesn't want to empty the churches. Rather, he wants to fill them, but have them with a worldly mindset. In other words, to have them uh, essentially converted to the world, but in the churches. So he doesn't want to empty the church. He doesn't want to destroy the church. He wants to maintain the church edifice." but have it freed, emptied uh, of the spirit of the church and have the people in the church have the spirit of the world. That's the aim today. So you won't necessarily have to see the bloodshed we saw in the 20s to have the same outcome, which is a docile, servile uh, church that is following after the world. And, of course, we know that the spirit of antichrist is the spirit of the world and secularism is the spirit of antichrist so the goal here different methods same end and that is to bow down before and serve the ends of a utopia a antichrist utopia uh, on earth so adjunct of the state apparatus up to 27 it had failed they had failed to obtained that. They had created schisms, they had created division, they had sent many people to their martyrdom uh, and the exile, but they had failed to, to achieve what? And to make the church an adjunct of the state apparatus. It's interesting, that phrase, again, I want to bring it back to what's going on today in the Orthodox Church. How much are their local church, I'm not answering the question, I don't know the answer, frankly, to what degree, 
it's hard to decipher, in a, and there's many different uh, cases, but the question is an important one. How much of the local Orthodox churches, whether official or unofficial, whether old country, new country, are functioning are functioning adjuncts of the state apparatus as far as uh, doing the will in those things, which by all measurements are an encrosion and 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 on the life of the church, a kind of set kesero uh, papism, which we're going to talk about at the end of our talk tonight. So, critical to these attempts was that the church make concessions. They must compromise, including the quote legalization of the provisional patriarchal holy synod under the deputy of the patriarchal locum tenens. Should be a T there. Um, so the legalization, they want the church to accept, it's an illegal organization. They've made it illegal for, for almost a, dec a decade now. So they're saying, look, we'll give you that. The, the, the carrot is, we'll give you legalization in exchange for freedom, essentially, in exchange for becoming an adjunct of the state apparatus. And now we have the deputy of the patriarch, Patriarchate, uh, patriarchal locum tenens, Metropolitan Sergi. And we come to 1927, the declaration signifies, in the words of this author, signifies the church's transition from an apolitical position to one of an internal spiritual solidarity with the authorities. Very interesting expression. I think it's well said internal spiritual solidarity with the authorities. Now, there's some defenders of Sergianism who will say Sergius really didn't do much different than what Patriarch Tikhon did when he was released from prison and he signed certain concessions and he talked about loyalty to the, uh, the state. Let's pay attention now is that all that's happening? And, and, and what nature and what to what degree? Uh, say Tikhon, of course, never went. I'm answering the question immediately, but it's really important to, to state out front. We didn't examine it enough, but it's clear St. Tikhon made some statements, but his policy, his stance continued to be unchanged. And he did not fulfill the hopes and dreams of the state secret police, as we just said, and as this author says, they did not. They had failed to make it an adjunct of the state apparatus. What's going to change is that they succeed to do that with Metropolitan Sergius. Very, very important, because there is this superficial analysis that even notable and respected people make to somehow say, well, Sergius just did a little bit different, maybe a little bit worse, but essentially the same as Patriarch Tikhon. It's not the case. And certainly the reaction of many faithful bishops to Patriarch Tikhon and Patriarch Sergius is night and day. So the church's consciousness did not see that as the case. And the church consciousness of the many of the bishops and faithful absolutely saw there was a massive difference between the two, even though language might have been similar and only certain language, not all of it. As you'll see when you read the whole document, you'll see that the degree to which the 
Metropolitan Surges goes is much, much further than Pratsyaratika. So concessions must be obtained and included in it, for example, in, in, the ter- in, in the case of Metropolitan Surges, transfers of bishops for reasons of political expediency. So they want the church to say to the atheist state, you can intervene in the life of the church and transfer bishops for the, according to your own whims. And that will be acceptable. It created a new form of mutual interdependence between the patriarchal church and the author using the term patriarchal church because we to, to differentiate from the living uh, church or the renovationist and the Gregorian schism. So that's how they do that in the, in the academic text. Between the patriarchal church and the government, indeed, from this point on, the state almost totally controlled life in the church. Of course, that did not happen with Patriarchica. These far-reaching changes were received negatively by many clergy and laity. All right, I think it's a, that's a good beginning of our understanding what's happening here. So what happened essentially? In a word, Metropolitan Surges, who you see here on the left, gave up freedom in exchange for legalization. And you'll see that that's, that seemed to be very important to him. So the most important thing of all is to have that legalization, to get a place at the table to be accepted by the Soviet secret police and the, and the policymakers and to stop, he thinks, he, he wrongly thinks, to stop the bloodshed, perhaps in the best case scenario, to stop the bloodshed if that's what he thought he was going to do. Was that did not happen at all, uh, and that was not ever going to be the intention of the secret police. Of course, they were not going to stop the bloodshed uh, at all, and they they continued for decades. So, <clears throat> threatened with liquidation of the entire Orthodox hierarchy again, fear, threats. We're going to kill everyone. We're going to kill your, your your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. We're going to kill all the hierarchs. That's how these thugs, these demonically led uh, secret police worked to get their will. So the, 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 the poor Metropolitan is in prison. He's thre- they're threatening all kinds of terrible things. And he agrees to meet the authorities' basic demands, especially to tolerate their interference in internal church life and church policy in exchange for the, quote, legalization of the patriarchal church. Now, this also is an interesting thing, because in the time of the Antichrist, uh, as St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco says, he says that those who will bow down will point to the status of the church and say, look what we've achieved. Not unlike at all, unlike what Metropolitan Sergius had achieved, quote unquote, achieved for the Russian church. So, again, a great lesson for us. A tremendous lesson for us as we go forward step by step closer to the end of history and to the rise of Antichrist. No one knows precisely when that will happen, but every day is a day closer to the end of history. And so um, that is a characteristic of the end times. Why, why did I name this the a type of the end times? Because there's so many parallels because the methodology is going to be similar and of course, as we said, history is circular and linear. We will see it repeat itself, perhaps again in our day before the end. We don't know. Many thought they were in the time of the Antichrist. 
literally in, at the time of the rise of Antichrist in the thirties, twenties, uh, and thirties, and they certainly were before the spirit of Antichrist, the face of Antichrist, and as we are today. If they were, so are we today. Things have not improved generally uh, uh, in terms of the overall picture of the spiritual status of the, of the Western world, especially, but all the world. So we can definitely say and see this this uh, characteristic of the of the church, which has been received and accepted by a totally uh, antagonistic spirit of the world, and has been reconciled with that to a certain degree, to a certain degree, but bought into the idea that it needs to be legal. It needs to it needs to have that legalization. Otherwise, uh, it won't be saved. This is a, a phrase used again and again. To save the church. Now, what does that mean? We'll, we'll unpack that probably next week more. Uh, is that really possible by a legalization by an atheist state or by the Antichrist? Will we save the church? Of course not. Uh, so in exchange for legalization, we have uh, given up our freedom of the inner life of the church. And what does that mean in practice? Well, immediately it meant Episcopal ordinations could be only be carried out with the agreement of the secret police. OGPU is the abbreviation for the secret police. Bishops could be transferred for political reasons, as we said. Pulpits of convicted bishops could be occupied by appointees, by the secret police, and so forth. So the secret police, of course, is going to put all of their cronies in place of the faithful bishops, and they have secured that right, as it were, from Metropolitan Surges, a, a terrible concession. Of course, Petriarchica never did any of this. Uh, Metropolitan Sergei chose cooperation with the authorities after lengthy vacillation and numerous attempts to find a more advantageous, advantageous path for the church. He acted in order to preserve the supremacy of a, quote, legal orthodoxy. Now, let's talk a minute about the methodology of the enemy. We know from the from the beginning of history, from the Garden of uh, where uh, where Adam and Eve were dwelling in peace with the Lord, that the enemy used several steps to achieve, achieve his infiltration and subversion of Adam and Eve. First of all, coexistence. Secondly, dialogue. Thirdly, infiltration. Fourthly, subversion in the noetic realm. So here we have. Coexistence. He's in prison, he's under the thumb, he's in the interrogations, and dialogue. He opens a dialogue with him. This is, of course, the fatal error of Metropolitan Surges, that he opens a dialogue where other hierarchs simply would not go. They would not acquiesce, and they were exiled. So Metropolitan Surges, we can we can only we cannot know his soul, we don't know his, his motivations, but can only speculate, but for some, for some spiritual reason, perhaps the rights he had given when he was a renovationist, and perhaps he did not properly repent, and of course should never have had uh, uh, pastoral leadership in the church again after his betrayal and his de denial of the church and his apostasy. This was the grave error that the, that they even put him in a position of authority to begin with. And we have to recognize that, that the error didn't begin with 27 in the Declaration. It goes back earlier to the to those bishops who allowed him to obtain, again, authority in the church after such a betrayal in the to the renovationists. And, of course, people will say later that he was just continuing the renovationist program. Not a surprise. 
He was a, a renovationist. And the fact that any bishop could have bought into the renovationists is a proof that they had serious spiritual delusions going on before the temptation of renovationism and before the signing of the Declaration of 27. So it is not a surprise. But the question is that we need to answer and we should have examined. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with all the sources. But I, I would hope there would be much more attention paid to the roots of the problem, the methodology of the enemy, and how did Sergius arrive at the point he did to negotiate the freedom of the church away in exchange for a legalization which was about worth as much as the paper it was written on. Because, of course, these men were not honorable men to, to honor the church. How absolutely absurd. The Metropolitan Surgeon believed that the, he was dealing with people who would respect the freedom, the, the, the legalization, not the freedom, of course, but the legalization that they had given. Of course not. And as we'll see, and as church history shows, he saved no one, perhaps only himself and a few others, certainly not all of the saints and the priests and the bishops who were exiled and murdered. So this is a very important uh, part of the whole puzzle. Dialogue, coexistence dialogue, subversion, uh, infiltration in the thoughts begins to say, well, maybe that's the devil's suggestion. You ought to do that. You ought to submit the church to us. You ought to become an adjunct of the state uh, apparatus. Hmm. And he starts to consider, well, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe that's better than this situation we're in now. Maybe we ought to think about that. The minute that he allows those thoughts to enter entertain those thoughts, he is subverted. He's infiltrated, and now he's subverted. And it's a matter of time until he becomes a, a, a dutiful slave to the enemy's suggestions. And as you'll see in this dialogue we're going to present tonight, it's unbelievable. If you don't understand the previous history, you don't understand the spiritual laws, you don't understand the dialogue that was going on in his head with the enemy and the subversion, the answers he gives <clears throat> to the faithful who come to him, objecting to his declaration, obviously are very puzzling, if not bizarre, if not absolutely unbelievable, that a man could answer in such a way. If you understand what's preceded that, the spiritual nature of the betrayal, it's not that surprising. So let's look at the Declaration. We have gone, I did not find a, an English version of the Declaration in full in, in circulation on the Internet. So I've taken the Russian and put it into an automatic translation. I thought it did very well, the automatic translation. For the most part, there might be some errors, so forgive me. So we have we've had that translation done of the whole declaration. Usually just a paragraph is cited. In fact, everywhere I searched, I only found this paragraph. I think it's very important to look at things in context and to see the whole thing and then to look at the statement that was made that's usually quoted in context. And, and, and to remember as you read these lines that as because many of the lines are not objectionable, uh, they sound like an orthodox hierarchy, of course. They're not some kind of alien from space. People tend to, tend to demonize the enemies. Uh, they tend to demonize human beings who fall into the traps of the enemies. 
This is, of course, an error. Uh, and we stand with pride and we judge them, uh, the, the, the enemy, and we, and we make it impersonal, the surgeonists, the, the, uh, the catacombists, whatever it is. That we, and, we, and we create this label and slogan for each group. And in that way, we, we are actually, that's not the way of the saints. They don't do that. Um, it's certainly not only if, if, if they do it at all, it's in, in, enter in any kind of polemical sense, it's for pedagogical reasons and never because they lose sight of the human being. And most importantly, they don't, as Father Seraphim Rose writes in one of his things, we are all potentially a Judas. We are all potentially a Judas. Don't ever forget that. Because without that mindfulness and that humility that we can deny easily our Lord, we will fall into pride and be more susceptible to denying the Lord. We have to remain very low to the ground today if we're going to save, be saved in this day and age and not studge. Now, having said that, that does not mean we don't want to speak the truth and analyze and come to conclusions which are God-pleasing, God forbid. But, but as far as the people who are who are uh, fall into the traps of the enemy, we have to be mindful that we could fall into them too, that where there's nothing except the grace of God that, that, may, that keeps us from that. And obedience to the teachings of the Holy Fathers. So let's read the declaration. One of the concerns, this is right into, uh, I'm sorry, this is actually, yes, this is right at the beginning of the declaration. I don't have the, the very beginning uh, with his uh, greetings, uh, but uh, this is um, the beginning. One of the concerns of the late Most Holy Father, uh, our Patriarch Tikhon, before his death, was to put our Holy Orthodox Russian Church in the right relationship to the Soviet government and thus give the church the opportunity to have a completely lawful and peaceful existence. Uh, that might be true. I, I don't doubt it. But the question is, what kind of relationship? Right? What kind of relationship? That's the question. And the assumption here on the Metropolitan, appears that he's in the same spirit, he thinks, as St. Tikhon. Of course, St. Tikhon, as we said, did not do a lot of what he did. Uh, in dying or during his dying, the, the holiness uh, said we should have lived for another three years. Not sure what implication here is of that, but in any case. And of course, if the unexpected death had not stopped his hierarchical labors, he would have brought the matter to the end. Un so now Metropolitan Surgeon said, I'm going to bring the matter to the end. He's setting it up as this didn't happen by Tika. So I'm going to assume that role and I'm going to save the Russian church. Uh, unfortunately, various circumstances, and mainly the speeches of foreign enemies of the Soviet state, among whom were not only ordinary believers of our church, but also their leaders, arousing the government's natural and just distrust of church leaders in general, interfered with the efforts of His Holiness, and he was not fated in life to see their efforts crowned success. Now, he's, of course, referring to the exiled bishops, the Russian church outside of Russia, the so-called Karlovsky Synod. Uh, and he has a very negative opinion, at least in writing. Now, we have an earlier version of his writings that's cited by St. John and others, where he appears uh, to be uh, much more uh, friendly and, uh, and, and shows a genuineness. In this document, he is very antagonistic to the church abroad. Um, and some might say this was forced upon him. Um, maybe this document was even... Uh, partly written by the Soviets, uh, the secret police. In any case, it was, of course, approved by the secret police. 
So um, it's hard to say how much he is writing and how much the secret police is writing here. But in any case, it's it's issued. And of course, it's it's it, it, on the face of this is very naive because the Soviets did not have the problem was not the the, the foreign bishops creating distrust. The problem was that the, they had distrust immediately and they wanted to destroy the church. So, I mean, this is it's it's absolutely totally naive to think that oh, if we didn't have the Russian bishops abroad saying saying we ought to return to the czar, everything would be hunky dory in in Russia. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, so this is the the impression here is given that yes, that it's all their fault. Uh, no, uh, it's not the case at all, um, and it's of course to be expected. And the and the Soviets were not surprised that the Church abroad would be antagonistic and want the return of the Tsar. Uh, that's that is uh, uh, really quite ridiculous to think that um, they didn't know that already. Now. <clears throat> the lot to be to be the interim deputy primate of our church has fallen again on me. He had been in prison and he came out again. The unworthy Metropolitan Sergius, together with a lot, fell upon me the duty to continue the work of the deceased of the reposed uh, Saint uh, Tikhon and strive in every way for the peaceful arrangement of our church affairs. My efforts in this direction shared with me and the Orthodox Archpastors do not seem to remain fruitless with the establishment. So at this point, he had already established negotiations, agreements. They don't, they don't know that, of course, uh, but he's, uh, he's, uh, he's achieved uh, through negotiations uh, what he's excited about, which is legalization of the church. And so he's saying, look, I've already got fruit from my work uh, with the establishment of the provincial patriarchal Holy Synod under me, which was allowed by the Soviet uh, police. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the hope is strengthened to bring our entire church administration into proper order uh, and confidence in the possibility of a peaceful life and activity is growing ours uh, within the law. Now, this translation is a bit off, but uh, the meaning, I think, is not lost. Uh, so um, there appears to be, a let's just say it, a, I don't know if it's true, but a genuine belief and hope that the order and peace will be established in the church through his concessions. Uh, if that was the case, of course, he was gravely deluded. But it's hard to know how much that was and it was, if it was just diplomatic doublespeak. Now, when uh, we are almost at the very goal of our uh, aspirations, the actions of foreign enemies uh, do not stop. Okay, So foreign enemies are hard to know exactly who he's referring to. But he's certainly not referring to the Soviets because uh, they've approved the document. Murders, arsons, raids, explosions, and similar phenomena of the underground struggle are before our very eyes. It's probably referring to um, antagonistic, for antagonistic forces against the Soviet uh, powers. All, all this disrupts the peaceful course of life, creating an atmosphere of mutual distrust and all kinds of suspicion. The more necessary for our church and the more obligatory for all of us who cherish her interests, who wish to lead her on the path of legal and peaceful existence, legal and peaceful existence, the more obligatory. They had been illegal for 10 years. Right? So this is this 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 uh, quest for legality, the legalization uh, is is a particular desire of surges. I don't think the delusion, uh, this delusion uh was shared by many in the church at this point after 10 years of being in an illegal uh, existence. 
The more obligatory for us now is to show that we, the church leaders, are not the enemies of the Soviet state and not with insane instruments of their intrigue, but with our people and our government. Not sure, again, the translation is rough, so forgive me. Hard to understand here um, what he's referring to exactly, but certainly it's the this idea that we have to prove, the Orthodox have to prove that we're not enemies of the Soviet state. Now, certainly, um, when a state is decimating and killing and murdering and exiling you for uh, simply living uh, according to your conscience, not the church was not creating any kind of physical uh, revolutionary uprising, of course, but simply the thought police uh, did not could not abide by the existence of the church. Uh, in, in undermining the spirit and the mindset of the people uh, and keeping them faithful to the traditions and the past. So this is the problem, of course, not that there's some kind of a need to prove we're not going to throw uh, Molotov cocktails, which was not happening. To testify to this is the first purpose of our present, that is mine and the synodal epistle. All right, so he's saying here, the purpose here is to prove that we are uh, ready to... Uh, Live peacefully, etc., etc. Then we inform you that in the May of this year, at my invitation, with permission of the authorities, the temporary, temporary uh, patriarchal holy synod was organized under the deputy, myself, consisting of the under undersigned. Uh, we'll see who signed at the end. Uh, he mentions two that did not come uh, due to illness. Our petition for permission of the synod to begin the activity of the governing of the Orthodox All Russian Church. Central government, uh, all Russian church council is probably what they want to say, was crowned with success. Now our Orthodox Church Union has not only canonical, but also completely legal central government according to civil laws. So again, this is the great achievement. He's very proud that he's achieved legality, legalization. We hope that the legalization will gradually spread to our lower church administration, diocesan and district. It hardly needs to explain, uh, needs to be explained the meaning and all the consequences of the change thus taking place in the position of our Orthodox Church, her clergy, all our church leaders, institutions. Let us lift up our Thanksgiving prayers to the Lord, who so favorably favored our Holy Church. So his negotiations, his compromises that he's made, allowing the internal life of the church to become enslaved to the Soviets is the main reason why he can now talk about the legalization of the church. And yet, he's presented it here as a great achievement of divine providence and a, 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 a tremendous achievement uh, that will bode very well for the future of the church, uh, which is, uh, not to say the least, very problematic. Uh, let us express publicly our gratitude to the Soviet government. It's the same, it's the same Soviet government that has many of these hierarchs that are his co-governing -hi co uh, uh, hierarchs in uh, exile in prison right now. So we're gonna we're gonna lift up Thanksgiving to the Lord and to and give gratitude to have gratitude for the Soviet government, which is killing us for such attention to the spiritual needs of the Orthodox population. This is one of the lines that was chosen by many of the new martyrs and the, those who rejected the declaration. Uh, is repeated this back to him in their letters, saying, uh, "Are you serious?" You wrote such a thing uh, that their attention—they're paying attention to the spiritual needs of the Orthodox population. When, when, and where did that happen? 
Uh, and at the same time, assure the government that we will not misuse the trust placed in us. Now, here comes the text that's been most often quoted in, in the yellow portion here is what's almost always quoted. Having begun with the blessing of God, our synodal work, we realize clearly, clearly realize that magnitude of the task that lies ahead both for us and for all the representatives of the church in general. We need to show, not in words, but in deeds, that not only those who are indifferent to Orthodox Christianity, not only those who have betrayed it, but also its most zealous adherents, all of you, in other words, the bishops and priests that are listening to me, for whom it is dear as truth and life, with all his dogmas and traditions, with all his canonical and liturgical structure, can be faithful citizens of the Soviet Union, loyal to this church Soviet government. We want to be orthodox and at the same time recognize the Soviet Union as our civil motherland. Now, here's, the, here's some of the additions that certainly were never said by St. Tikhon and others. Whose joys and successors are our joys and successes, and whose failures are our failures. Any blow directed to the union, now, not to the motherland, not to the people, to the union. So it appears that he's referring to the, including the governing authorities, uh, be it a war, a boycott, boy, boycott, some kind of social disaster, or just a murder from around the corner, like the law, the Warsaw one, is recognized by us as a blow directed at us. So any blow to the Soviet power, to the union, to the governing uh, authority, is a blow directed at us. So he is identifying the church with the state, the state with the church. What's so odd here, we're going to talk about this repeatedly, I'll repeat myself because I want to drive it home. What's so odd here is that the Soviets had worked for a decade to maintain a separation of church and state and had made the church illegal. Now the Soviets, along with Metropolitan Surges, are saying we have a union of the church and state and we have legality, legality, a union. So now we've become a part, an apparatus, an adjunct of the uh, state apparatus. This was not done by Patriarch Tikhon, of course. Remaining Orthodox, we remember our duty to be citizens of the Union, not only out of fear, but also out of, by conscience. Okay, so this is another, another phrase that was used in the letters in rejection of his declaration, that we are of conscience uh, to a, a governing authority, that, which up until this point, including St. Tikhon, everyone had recognized as not of God, as a usurp usurpation of legitimate authority, as a demonic, satanic authority over the people of, of God in Russia. So now uh, he quotes the apostle, uh, not only out of fear, but also by conscience, that we are dutiful citizens, dutiful citizens. We do our duty up to the state, for the state. We become uh, united uh, in, in, in goals and aims, joys and successes to the state. And we hope that with the help of God, with our common assistance and support, this task will be solved by us, achieved. I'm not sure the translation is probably not so accurate there. So that's the uh, right, that, that, that paragraph, okay? That, that's the paragraph that is most uh, offensive, but there, there's more. We're going to keep reading because, again, many, many, at least in English, have never seen a lot of what we're reading right now. 
uh, to my knowledge. I don't know if it's, it's circulated and I didn't see it. Only what prevented us, he goes on, from organizing church life on the basis of loyalty in the first years of Soviet power can hinder us only. Hinder us. I, so he's saying, look, only if we continue in the old stance, that's, our, that's the enemy now. The enemy is not the state. The enemy is not uh, our compromising. Uh, the enemy is our old stance. We've got to change, he says. This is very clear. He wants everybody to change their stance along with him. He clearly understands that he's, he has to convince everyone. Now, he comes, and, he, and he, in, in this document, it's very clear that he is trying to convince everyone, all the bishops, to change their stance that they've had the last 10 years. This is an insufficient awareness of the seriousness of what has happened in our country. Now, apparently he thinks that people don't understand. They don't have a serious understanding of what has happened in, their, in the country. Only, only he does. I'm not sure what the implication here is. The, appro the approval of Soviet power seemed to many to be some kind of misunderstanding, accidental, and therefore short-lived. People have forgotten that there was no choice uh, no chance, sorry. In other words, he's saying that there's always providence. There's no chance for a Christian. And that in what has happened with us, as everywhere and always, the same hand of God acts, steadily leading each nation to its intended goal. Now, this is a very important point. It is very clear in patristic teachings that there is, there is the will of God, katevdokian in Greek, katevdokian thelima, the, the will of God. And then there is the kataparahoresi, the what God allows, which is not his will, which is not his will, but is allowed by God because of man's sin, because of man's turning away, because of the conditions that are created by the apostasy of man, by the fall of man, right? And those things that he allows because we, he, he, he cannot and does not want to, it's not that he can, does not want to ever to impinge upon our freedom. Unlike the Soviet power and unlike the metropolitan here who has agreed to the impinging of the freedom of the church, the Lord never wants that for anyone. And he never does that. He always freely, well, he wants free human beings to freely choose to be with him. And he never imposes. Uh, and that is because he has his nobility. The Lord is, is, a, is a noble, philotimos, uh, to use Elder Paisios. Uh, expression. I mean, he had, he is, it, it, that's the spirit of God. It's not a spirit of totalitarianism and of control and of, of manipulation. And so, uh, to say here, to imply here that God's providence, his hand is guiding and allowing for, or as you say, not allowing for, but guiding even in the end and, and, and bringing about the rule of the Bolsheviks. Now, that would be grievous. To say it is allowed by God does not, therefore, establishes that an authority of God that deserves obedience and subjection. And, and remember the words of the apostles and the Acts of the Apostles. It is better for us to obey God than, rather than men. When did they say that? Before the Pharisees, who were telling them not to preach Christ. And what were the Soviets saying? Not to preach Christ. Not to, to, to be the church of Christ. Uh, but to be subjected to an atheist uh, uh, totalitarian state. So what should be applied and what was being applied by all the new martyrs up to that point and, and others was clearly the stance of the apostles before the Pharisees and not the idea that this is a legitimate authority willed by God for subjection of the church and certainly not the loss of the freedom of the church. So this is a twisted, so he's very twisted here. 
in his understanding of what's going on and what had, what had hitherto been understood by, I think, the consensus of the church fathers of the time. Uh, the question of how then to deal with this usurpation of power and this Soviet power is a good question. And Patriarchikin obviously was grappling with that. But never was there any idea, until, Patri until Metropolitan Sergius, that we could give up our freedom in exchange for legality, for legalization. That was not, and it's properly called Kesserol Papism. It's a new term, not coined by Orthodox, but it's, it works for us. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been used actually to describe portions of church history when uh, Caesars, emperors of the East had essentially ruled over the church, forced the church, the iconoclasts and others forced the church to do their will. Uh, so this is very much uh, similar, but much worse, because now we have a now we have a power that is antagonistic in every way to the will of God, uh, and 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 is not just a person, a, a passing emperor, but the whole system, the whole philosophy, the whole structure is now turned against uh, the church and God. Not just one emperor, but the whole system is very big, much much worse than what we had. It, during church history in the Roman Empire uh, and the perversions there. All right, so let's get back to the text. It may seem to such people who do not want to understand the signs of the times, interesting that he uses this term, uh, unbelievable uh, that, that he's using this term, uh, which is, of course, meant by our Lord for us to see the machinations of the enemy and not to see some kind of uh, co-working with the enemy. That is impossible to break with the previous regime and even with the monarchy without breaking with orthodoxy, all right? So he's saying you've got to understand the signs of the times because it, it, this idea that it's impossible to break with the previous regime and the monarchy without breaking with orthodoxy, that's nonsense, he says. Look, you've got to set that aside. Staying faithful to the monarchy is not a prerequisite for being orthodox. Uh, of course, this is, the, this is the debate that's been going on in Russian orthodoxy for the last hundred years. And there are many in the diaspora who have a nuanced view. I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, but let's understand his words here, which I think um, uh, he's trying to make this into a political issue and not uh, see it in a spiritual dimension. Such a mood of well-known church circles, he's of course talking about uh, the pro-monarchy, uh, Russian church abroad mainly, but others, expressed, of course, both in words and deeds and incurring the suspicion of Soviet power, also hampered the efforts of his holiness, the patriarch. Again, presenting himself as a continuer of the work of Patriarch Tikhon, uh, he's, 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 he's using the, the mantle of Patriarch Tikhon as a, as a way to, to present himself as an authority and for people to, to be subjected to him as essentially doing the work that the patriarch set, set out. The church did not buy that by a long shot. Many, many people rejected that that was the case. Uh, to establish peaceful relations between the church and the Soviet government. So I, I'm doing what Patriarchica wanted to be done. And he's saying, now, it is not for nothing that the apostle inspires us that we can live quietly and serenely, according to our piety, only by obeying the legitimate authority. The legitimate authority. Very important phrase. The legitimate authority. Or we must leave society. 
Only armchair dreamers can think that such a huge society as our Orthodox Church with all organization can exist in that state calmly, shutting herself off from the power. So he's, like, he's, he's saying, look, realism, come to your senses, you dreamers. It's time to be realistic. We need to put water in our wine. Now, how much water? Well, I've put all the water. It's become now just mostly water and a little bit of wine. But, hey, we're going to exist now. We're going to be legal. That's what's important. Um, so you got to come to reality. It's real politic time. It's, it's just deal with the world uh, and, and stop being dreamers and, and, and in the clouds with orthodox principles and orthodox uh, 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 theology and, and theories of uh, of uh, the third Rome and I don't know what else uh, the deluded dreamers had in their mind that he's rejecting. Uh, this is the it, you know a lot of these texts you have to read between the lines because they don't come out and say it as if they were sitting uh, with friends. They're politicking, and this is true with many ecclesiastical texts. But this is this is the intention. Uh, so. Now, when our patriarchate, fulfilling the will of the deceased patriarch, again, you see, again and again, represents, I am doing the will of patriarchate, and you must obey me if you love patriarchate. Very manipulative. Very manipulative. Uh, and, 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 and arrogant. Forgive me, uh, Metropolitan Surgeons, but it's an arrogant stance. Uh, that you, uh, you have, there's no conciliar question here. Have you, have you consulted your brother bishops? Have you discussed them with this massive uh, change of stance that you're, that you're uh, agreeing to. No. This is also interesting. Another lesson for our time, papalism. We have a massive papalism in the Orthodox Church, imitating and essentially working uh, on that kind of frame. Uh, in one of the histories of this period, and I'll be talking about this next week, uh, this point is made, that uh, that actually Sergius here is, is acting in a very papal Popish way, uh, a primate with with massive powers over the bishops. It's clearly, uh, and that's a sickness that is very rampant in the Orthodox Church today, where we ourselves are poking our eyes out ourselves uh, by not by abandoning the conciliar synodical tradition of the Church. If he had been in that spirit, he never would have issued the declaration. We wouldn't have had the problems we had. So much again, what's behind the declaration? Is a papalism. It's not. It's also the renovation of spirit we talked about. His apostasy, rights to the devil, dialoguing with the enemy, but also a papalism that I, you must hear me. I am the voice of patriarch Tikhon. <laughs> so now, when our patriarchate, fulfilling the will of the deceased patriarch, decisively and irrevocably takes the path of loyalty, decisively and irrevocably takes the path of loyalty. Now, Patriarch Tikhon used that term as well, but did not mean the same thing. It's very important to unpack the terms and to see how they're applied and to see what he means by those terms. People of this mood will either have to change themselves and leaving their political sympathies at home, bring only faith to the church and work with us only in the name of the faith. All right, so he's saying, look, politics aside, as if this is really the problem with the church. Church is a political problem. There's been some analysis done by some modern scholars to imply that the stance of the new martyrs in the church outside of Russia were just politically motivated. That is a slander against the new martyrs uh, and just not a true understanding of the deeper problems that the church was facing. As I'm trying to point 
us to here. I think that the new martyrs point is there. We'll see next week very clearly that this is a deeply, deeply spiritual delusion and perversion and, and apostasy from the freedom of the church and not a political question of loyalty to a past regime uh, or a future uh, Soviet uh, future. Uh, so again, let me reread this. Now when our patriarchate, fulfilling the will of the deceased patriarch, decisively and irrevocably takes the path of loyalty, people of this mood will either have to change themselves, you must change, all of you who are not listening to me, and leaving their political sympathies at home, as if that's the problem, right? It's just a political question. As if we're talking about two political parties as mo mostly share and respect, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the democratic principles. This is not the case, obviously. We have a totalitarian regime which is destroying the church. Uh, leave their political sympathies at home, bringing only faith to the church, and work with us only in the name of faith. Now, this itself is very problematic because this idea that faith is some, is, it, this is a secularized understanding of the church. Faith is some kind of thing we put in a, in a package, in a department. We have the faith over here, we have the politics over there. Our life is, that kind of, that kind of compartmentalization is very characteristic of secularization. This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is very much alive today in the church. Uh, uh, you know, don't don't look at COVID as a question of spiritual life. It's just a health question. The, 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 the incursions, incursions of the church, of the state of the church, closing down churches, uh, barring people from communion, uh, using multiple spoons. This is not a question that you have to deal with. This is a, a question of health, a question of policy, a question of politics. But it's not a spiritual question. Same same idea. Differently, of course, for different contexts entirely, but similar uh, working out of principles. Uh, leave the political sympathies at home. Bring only faith to the church. Work with us only in the name of faith. Or, if they cannot immediately turn themselves around, or at least not interfere with us. Okay, so he says, look, I, I know I can't convince a lot of you. A lot of you aren't going to listen to me. Don't be an obstacle to my work. I mean, this is a papalism at its best, right? Just listen and be quiet. Get it out of the way. Uh, temporarily withdrawing from the case. Just get, get get out of the way until I can get this accomplished. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Trust the Pope. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. We are sure that they will again and very soon return to work with us. Oh, of course. Of course, we're all going to come to our senses and follow the Metropolitan who has given us this declaration making sure that only the attitude towards the authorities has changed while faith and Orthodox Christian life remain unshakable. This is the grave delusion that he's just making a, a, a little click in our policy when he has subjected the whole church to the Soviet control and he has subjected the whole freedom of the church to the Soviet uh, antichrist spirit. But no, 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 I'm just going to make a little click. We're going to become legal. It's all going to be good. And everything's going to stay the same. We're not going to deny the faith. We're not going to deny Christ. Everything's going to be fine. And, of course, in a way, we can say the dogmas of the Trinity, the dogmas of, of Christ, the, the human nature, divine nature, have not been distorted. But the dogma of the church? Can we say the dogma of the church has not been distorted? We're going to talk about that next week. He goes on, particularly acute in this situation is the question of the clergy who went abroad with immigrants. Oh, these are the enemies now. We've got to, these people are causing all the problems for us. And of course, how much did he really write this and how much was written by the Soviet 
secret police. I mean, they hated the Karlovsky Synod, the the uh, Church Abroad, because, of course, they were a voice of freedom, a voice they could not control. Of course, all the totalitarian, totalitarian regimes hate the voices they can't control, and they have to silence them, or they have to they have to make them illegitimate. Do we see the same thing going on today in our church? Of course we do. Everywhere. What is going on? This, this total censorship across the board. Same totalitarian spirit is alive and well today. The vividly anti-Soviet speeches of some of our arch pastors and pastors abroad, which greatly harmed relations between the government and the church, as is known, forced the late patriarch to abolish the synod abroad. Of course, that's questionable. Did he really abolish it or was he forced to abolish it? That's one question. Uh, and secondly, um, again, the delusion that the speeches of the church abroad are the problem, as if the Soviet power had any other objective but to destroy the church. We know now, without a doubt, from all the secret police files and all the research been done, that they never intended for freedom or anything to give to the church uh, and to, but to destroy the church. So, again, this is just propaganda on the part of the Soviet secret police that's now being spewed by a metropolitan of the church. But the synod still continues to exist politically unchanged and recently with its claims to power even split the church society abroad into two camps. Bad, bad schismatics abroad. We have to have an enemy. To put an end to this, we demanded from the foreign clergy to give a written commitment of complete loyalty to the Soviet government in all their public activities. As if that is possible and again, delusional on the part of Mitch Walden that he's signing this document, which is that, of course, many people believe that he, he, he understood the falsity of it all. Many people believe that he, he was not that deluded uh, and that he went along with it for the sake of uh, the external peace. Uh, so uh, it, is, it does seem to be this is the hand of the secret police. But in any case, um, <clears throat> those who have not given such an obligation or who have violated it will be excluded from the clergy under the jurisdiction of the Moscow Patriarchate. You know, he had zero power, as he knows, over anybody abroad, and yet he's, he makes these statements as if um, this is going to be listened to. We think that by disengaging in this way, we will be secured against any surprises from abroad. Well, you, you're, you're sadly mistaken. On the other hand, our resolution perhaps will make many wonder whether it is time for them to reconsider the issue of their relation to Soviet power so as not to break with their native church and motherland. They did not. They broke. And we know that we know that church history uh, has, uh, has justified their stance. We consider it no less important task to prepare for the convocation and the very convocation of our second local council, which will elect us not a temporary, but an already, already permanent central church administration. And it will also make a decision about all the thieves of power of the church tearing apart the tunic of Christ. Interesting. So he's calling for a future council, which is, gonna, is going to punish all of the people he, he, uh, he calls thieves of power. Uh, who are who are schismatics, in other words. Uh, the, I, I assume the church abroad would be a part of this, uh, but per perhaps he's not mainly. Maybe he has in mind the, the, the uh, living church of the Gregorians. I don't know. Uh, the order and time of the convocation, the subjects of the church's activities, and the other details we worked out later. Now we will express only our firm conviction that our future council, having resolved many painful issues in our of our inner church life, 
At the same time, with his counsel, mind, and voice, we'll give final approval to the work we have undertaken to establish correct relations between our church and the Soviet government. So they didn't have correct relations to date, and now they do. This is the uh, idea. Uh, in conclusion, we earnestly ask you all, your grace, our pastors, pastors, brothers, and sisters, help us each in his rank with your sympathy and assistance to our work, your zeal for the work of God, your devotion, obedience to the Holy Church, especially with your prayers for us to the Lord. May he grant us successfully and God-pleasingly to complete the work entrusted to us to the glory of his holy name, to the benefit of our holy Orthodox Church, and to our common salvation. And he gives the, uh, uh, the grace of our Lord, etc. Now, it's important to, who is writing this? Of course, Bench Bogdan. Sergius, and then the members of the Provisional Patriarchal Holy Synod. And if you, I looked at these names, I went in online, I searched every one of them. I may be, I may be mistaken, but to my knowledge, to my, my, my research cannot be that in depth, but it does not appear that any of these are saints of the church or new martyrs. Uh, again, I may be mistaken, but I think the vast, at least the vast majority of these were not martyred, were not uh, understood to be saints of the church. I don't know how they ended their lives, if they were ended in their bed or if they were actually uh, ended in some kind of persecution, but they are not saints of the church to, for my research. I might be mistaken, happy to be corrected. And that's not, if that's true, that's instructive as well, isn't it? Because, of course, when they signed this document and they followed this policy, persecution was put at bay for at least some of them, right? Others were not. Others were turned upon later on in life who were part of the synod, and some did end their lives being executed. But at least these these particular ones, I did not see them end their life and did not see their life, at least in English, uh, showing that they had uh, died as martyrs. Now, immediately, the Orthodox Church in Russia responded, and the next six months were filled with epistles of protest, a whole torrent. Now, I'm quoting from Russia's Catacomb Saints. This is uh, Ivan uh, Andreev, I'm Andreev's uh, account, uh, and he says that it provoked a shock to the entire Russian Orthodox world. From every corner of the Russian land, there resounded the voices of protest of clergy and laymen. A mass of epistles was sent to Metropolitan Surges, and copies of them were sent throughout the land. The authors of these epistles implored Metropolitan Surges to renounce the ruinous path he had chosen. After a whole torrent of such epistles of protest, and an ending the file of delegations began to stream to Metropolitan Surges in Moscow. One such delegation was the historic delegation of the Petrograd Diocese in Petersburg, which came, which later was named Leningrad, uh, which came to, uh, well, after 1924, actually, the name Leningrad, which came to Moscow in November 27, on November 27, 1927. That's about five months later, right? So four or five months later have passed from the declaration. And, of course, they've already sent letters. Now they're coming to talk to him in person. And this is very interesting. We're going to take one, one such delegation. There were many. And we're going to look at the most important, which was from St. Petersburg, the old capital, some of the most important figures that were resisting uh, Sergius. Uh, obviously, we can't look at all the material and all the saints and all the writings and everything, but we're going to look at this one. And we're going to look at the, the whole narrative. What happened when they visited and what did he say? And this is from an eyewitness. 
Andreev was a part of the delegation. And he, of course, went on to Slolovki, his prison, and he came to the free world and taught at, at Jordanville. So this is a very good source. Uh, we have no reason to doubt this source uh, as being accurate. Uh, so he, who went with him from, uh, from uh, St. Petersburg? His bishop, his grace bishop, Dmitri, bishop of Gdov, one of the most important figures of the resistance, along with Metropolitan Joseph of St. Petersburg, who did not go because he was... I think already at this point he was in exile. He was in Odessa or somewhere. He, or no, he was in, uh, I don't remember where he was, uh, Rostov. And he could not come. Arch, Archpriest Viktorin uh, Dobronarov, Radovov, I'm sorry, this uh, difficult, his uh, professor Andreev, uh, Alexiev, and these are representatives of different parts of the church in St. Petersburg. So, uh, he represented, uh, Bishop Dmitri represented Metropolitan Joseph, had a long letter that had been signed by seven bishops who were, who were in Petrograd, seven bishops. Uh, there was also this archpriest who represented a numerous group from Petrograd clergy who had also written already a, an epistle of protest. Uh, there was Andreev who represented the academic circles. Uh, Andreev, as you remember, has something like five or four uh, PhDs. He's a professor of varieties issues. He was an academic. And then there was also a um, uh, the the last person in the group uh, Alexiev who represented the broad masses of the people. So this was an attempt to show that there was a unity uh, on many levels from the church in the old capital and they came to protest. Now <clears throat> as the story, as the narrative goes the, the re recounting goes, uh, despite the fact that the Petrograd delegation came to Moscow after many other delegations that had come with the same purpose, it was received without waiting its turn. The delegation's interview with Metropolitan Surges lasted for two hours. After going to Metropolitan Surges, all members of the delegation went up to him to receive his blessing, introduced themselves, and testified that they had come as faithful children of the Orthodox Church. Now, this is a very important methodology that we would all be very... Uh, uh, wise to imitate. And this is something that you, unfortunately, this kind of church life is disintegrating as it did after the declaration. Uh, but this is the way things should be. Before before a synod defrocks a bishop, before a synod denies that this, this person has uh, the grace of God because they've been defrocked, they've been uh, excommunicated, um, it is perfectly acceptable until there's been a um, uh, an apology given for their position. So, so if somebody comes and starts teaching heresy, teaching delusion, first we go and we write as they did. And we say, what are you doing? What is this? Explain. And then we go with, like it says in the scriptures, with the second person we go, the whole church goes, right? This is the process of how you deal with the innovations. And then only after they don't, they don't listen to the church, he says, let them be like a heathen and a, and a, and a Gentile. Now, there's a process that we follow. If you're under a bishop or a priest and they're innovating or teaching heresy, uh, you respect them as long as they uh, have not proven to be deluded heretics unrepentant. Uh, now, there's some questions of discernment. Uh, some, and I think Riley would say, if they've proven again and again, they do not listen and do not follow the teachings of the Holy Fathers and they teach heresy, you've gone once, you've gone twice, you've gone three times, then the distance is kept 
There's a distance kept because there's no do, no repentance on the part. Not necessarily a, we don't assume the rights and privileges of a synod to deny them uh, that they're outside the church. We don't uh, assume that they've been condemned by the church, but we definitely keep a distance from one who is teaching heresy and delusion at the very least. And that's a pedagogical and method, uh, perfectly acceptable pedi- uh, patristic methodology. But until that's established, we, we, the saints themselves, will uh, respect the person uh, and, and, not, and not immediately uh, reject them before giving them a, listen, a hearing. So this is what the delegation did. They went and gave him a hearing. Now, when Metropolitan Surgeon had finished reading the letters that had been brought to him, from the Episcopate, the clergy, and from the lady, Bishop Dimitri, who was 70 years old, fell to his knees before him and exclaimed in tears, Vladika, listen to us in the name of Christ. Metropolitan Sergius immediately raised him from his knees, seated him in his armchair, and said in a firm and somewhat irritated voice, what is there to listen to? Everything you have written has been written by others earlier, and to all this I have already replied many times clearly and definitively. What remains unclear to you? So here... The Metropolitan has shown that after five months, he has no interest in listening any longer, is not going to change his position at all. He's made up his mind, and no matter how many, how many people are going to come to him and beg him, and many had come, he's not interested in changing. Vladika began, Bishop Dimitri, in a trembling voice with copious tears. At the time of my consecration, you told me, that I should be faithful to the Orthodox Church, and in the case of necessity, that I should be prepared to lay down my life, my own life, as well as for Christ. Uh, my own life as well, for Christ. And now such a time of confession has come, and I wish to suffer for Christ. But you, by your declaration, instead of a path to Golgotha, propose that we stand on the path of collaboration with a God-fighting regime that persecutes and blasphemes Christ. You propose that we rejoice with its joys and sorrows, with it and sorrow with its sorrows. Our rulers strive to annihilate religion and the church, and rejoice at the destruction of churches. Rejoice at the success of their anti-religious propaganda. This joy of theirs is the source of our sorrow. You propose that we thank the Soviet government for its attention to the needs of the Orthodox population, but how is it that attention is that attention expressed? In the murder of hundreds of bishops, thousands of priests, millions of faithful. In the defilement of holy things, the mockery of relics. In the destruction of an immense number of churches, the annihilation of all monasteries. Surely it would be better if they did not give us such attention. Our government, Metropolitan Sergius interrupted, Bishop Dimitri, has persecuted the clergy only for political crimes. This is slander, Bishop Dimitri cried out heatedly. We wish to obtain a reconciliation of the Orthodox Church with the governing regime, Metropolitan Surgeons continue with irritation. While you are striving to underline the counter-revolutionary character of the Church, consequently, you are counter-revolutionaries, whereas we are entirely loyal to the Soviet regime. That is not true, exclaimed Bishop Dimitri heatedly. That is another slander against the confessors, martyrs, and those who have been shot 
and those who are languishing in concentration camps and in banishment. What counter-revolutionary act did the executed Metropolitan Benjamin perform? In what lies the counter-revolution in the position of Metropolitan Peter of Kutitsk? And the Slover and the Sobor, the Council of Karlovsky, in your opinion, also did not have a political character. This was his his uh, his uh, straw man, his uh, his way to to avoid the obvious truth that he just heard. But Jabal and Sergius interrupted him again. There was there was no sober of Karlovsky in Russia, and many martyrs in the concentration camps knew nothing of this sober. So it's irrelevant. He's saying you can't can't appeal to that. Say so it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's irrelevant. I personally continue, Bishop Dimitri, am a completely apolitical man. And if I myself had to accuse myself of the GPU, I couldn't imagine anything of which I am guilty before the Soviet regime. I only sorrow and grieve seeing the persecution against religion and the church. We pastors are forbidden to speak of this, and we are silent. But to, to the question whether there is any persecution against religion and the church in the USSR, I could not reply otherwise than affirmative. When they proposed to you, Vladika, to write your declaration, why did you not reply like Metropolitan Peter, that you can keep silence but cannot say what is untrue? Now, this goes to the point we made when we were looking at the declaration itself, that the grave error committed by Metropolitan Surgeons was to even enter into dialogue with the enemy. That was the same error committed by Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same error committed by those hierarchs who are leading the church down a massive uh, into a massive trap and down a, a path of delusion in ecumenism when they they have incessant and ending dialogues with people who are unrepentant who are not interested in coming back to the church and they they intentionally say we must never stop the dialogue well that is a demonic state of being the church does not dialogue with the devil it is not dialogue with unrepentant he gives them up to the mercy of God and prays for them. This is the clear witness of church history. So the, this is a, a very instructive here. What he says is absolutely true. Keep silent like Metropolitan Peter. Why did you not keep silent? You have chosen the path of dialoguing with the enemy, and of course you're going to fall into infiltration of the enemy in your noetic realm and then subjection to the noetic serpent. And he answers, and where is the untruth? Huh. You see, it apparently, if this is a, and I believe it is an accurate description of the, of the discussion, that he's not just repeating the Soviet lines, but he's speaking from his own soul here. And if this is the case, it confirms that he had fallen into grave delusion, step by step by step, from the renovationist to the dialogue with the enemy, and now he doesn't even recognize the untruth of his document and his statements. As Bishop Dimitri replies, in, in the fact that persecution against religion, the opium of the people, as they say, the Marxist dogma says, not only exists among us, but in its cruelty, cynicism, and blasphemy has passed all limits. Of course, how could you deny the persecution of the church? Well, we are fighting with this, he says, but we are fighting legally and not like the counter-revolutionaries. And when we shall have demonstrated our completely loyal position with regard to the Soviet regime, the results will be even more noticeable. Probably we'll be able, as a counterbalance to the atheists, to publish our own little religious journal. 
How pathetic, how utterly pathetic is this stance of this poor man? As if the level of discourse in a dialogue, which is obviously going to be censored, is going to change anything in the Soviet Union at the time. God help everyone who falls into such delusion and does not understand the spiritual life. You have forgotten Vladika, he says, remarked Archpriest Dobronravov. Sorry, I'm butchering that. That the church is the body of Christ and not a consistory with a little journal under the censorship of an atheist regime, indeed. It is not our political, but our religious conscience that does not permit us to join ourselves to your declaration. I noted, this is, this is Andrea saying, I wish to suffer for Christ, and you propose that we renounce him, said C.A. Alexiev with bitterness. And so you want a schism? Metropolitan surges asked threateningly. Ah, uh, this is very, very reminiscent, isn't it? The response of the deluded who teach delusions and heresies is always that those who resist them are schismatics. We see that in our day as well. We see that in our day as well, don't we? What a tragedy. This does not mean that the methodology everyone chooses to resist is patristic. That's another question. That's a different question. But the fact that the deluded and heretically minded all, almost always say, you are creating a schism because you don't listen to me. <laughs> exactly what we see today in the life of the church surrounding ecumenism. The orthodox are the schismatics because they do not listen to the heretically minded ecumenists. He goes on. Do not forget that the sin of schism is not washed away, even by the blood of martyrdom. The majority is in agreement with me. Uh, so this is the argument from the majority, right? Which is a fallacy and a delusion. And also, it is, again, an argument against orthodoxy on account of creating a schism. But had a schism been created? Because we were listening to Metropolitan Surgeons who didn't have the power to do what he was doing to begin with. He was a deputy of Locum Tenems. The Locum Tenems was still alive, and he was just his deputy. Secondly, he had not done any conciliar work for a consensus of the fathers. And there's a canon, a very important canon, that the Orthodox call upon in their dialogue with the papal uh, Protestants. But unfortunately, some Orthodox don't live by. That canon regulates that the first should always listen to the to the hierarchy, and the hierarchy do nothing without the first. That kind of conciliarity is at the heart of orthodoxy. He did not do that. He did not listen. He was a papalist in his approach, and he expected everyone to be obedient to him as if he was not only the patriarch, who he was not, not only the locum tenens, who he was not, but even uh, a pope figure in the church. I objected. This is Andreev. Voices must be weighed, not counted, Vladika. After all, Metropolitan Peter, the lawful locum tenens of the patriarchal throne, the one you're supposed to be listening to, is not in agreement with you. Nor are the Metropolitan Agathangel, Cyril, Joseph, Metropolitan Arsenios, Archbishop Seraphim, Archbishop Pacomios, Bishop Victor, Damaskin, Avertios, 
elders of Optina and the prisoners of Shalovki. So he's saying, look, you're not expressing as the first should the conciliar nature of the church. So here's another lesson that we have to learn. Departures from Orthodox ecclesiology are at the heart of the problem here. Sergianism is not just a question of some kind of agreement with the state. It's not just Kesaropapism that we're seeing here. It's a departure from Orthodox ecclesiology. It's a papalism. He had departed from the Orthodox conciliar mind. This is what causes so many problems, including schisms. And, and at the end of the day, when schisms are created, of course, the schism, the one who creates the schism, the scandalized, are also at fault because we must choose the patristic way and not create schism if we are indeed creating schism, if that's the case. But those who provoke it through diversion from Orthodox ecclesiology, the first cause are creating schism. So in the 1923 change of the calendar and all these innovations that were imposed on the churches without a conciliar decision, without a pan-Orthodox decision, this departure from Orthodox ecclesiology at the heart of why the calendar change was an error. The calendar change was an error, not because so much, although that's another discussion, but first and foremost, it was an error because of the denial of Orthodox ecclesiology. By the way, the same renovationist in Constantinople, the same mind that created that, that situation and departed from Orthodox ecclesiology, were in agreement with the renovationists of Russia. Again, Metropolitan Sergius was one of them at one point, and they also, paradoxically, supposedly for democratic institutions in the church, are papalists and do not follow the Orthodox ecclesiology uh, in this area. So truth is not always where the majority is, remarked Archpriest Dobronravov. Otherwise, the Savior would not have spoken of the little flock. And the head of the church has not always turned out to be on the side of the truth. How truth true that is. We have many, many heretics who were patriarchs of Constantinople and patriarchs of other seas. It is sufficient to recall the time of Maximus the Confessor. Indeed. The dialogue is almost coming to an end. We go on. By my new church policy, I am saving the church. You're going to hear this now many times afterwards by other people, including some in our own day. Metropolitan Sergius replied deliberately. And they all screamed at this point. Unbelievable that we heard such a phrase. What are you saying, Vladika? The church does not have need of salvation. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You yourself, Vladika, have need of salvation through the church. This is true for many of us, brothers and sisters. Do not look only at the, at the, at the papal Protestants or the papal-minded Orthodox or, or any number of groups. Look at ourselves. Many of us come to the church. We fall on the various right or left extremes of delusion, thinking that we're going to save the church, change the church, improve the church. This is at the heart of many of the problems in the church today, whether it be the innovationist up in Fordham or in Toronto with, a, with different, different websites that, that are promoting a total innovationist, worldly, revisionist, renovationist uh, uh, modernization of orthodoxy according to a worldly prototype. Or whether it be the, the far right who has fallen into a undiscerning zeal and wants to, wants to essentially uh, save the church, 
and have lost, has lost faith in the church, that the church will be saved as God has saved many times before. Even after the death of St. Maximus, we talked about St. Maximus, he died. 20 years later, the council happened. The great defender of orthodoxy had reposed, but he was saved by God. Do not lose faith in the church. Do not think you're going to save the church. <clears throat> we serve Christ. We confess the faith. We work against the heresy because that is a part of our salvation. And God saves the church. God saves the church. So again, another aspect of this delusion and this and this departure from Orthodox ecclesiology we see here in print. And again, repeated by many people, unfortunately. We need to save the church. He saved the church with his stance. Nonsense. No human being saves the church by any stance, let alone one that is compromised and allows the perversion of the inner life of the church and the exile of so many faithful. Absolutely absurd. I mean it. In that I mean that meant that in a different sense, replied Metropolitan Sir, just somewhat discouraged. And we think we know what he meant. He meant the external life of the church, the institutional life of the church, the seat of the deputy and future patriarch. Yes, in that sense, you saved it, but that's not salvation. And did you save it? Did you really save it? As we will see going on, many, 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 many churches were destroyed, many were exiled, many were killed through many purges. As one has said rightfully, he succeeded in saving no one but himself and maybe a few of the people with him uh, in his synod. Uh, so even that is delusional. Now, he means that. He means the external life of the church, the organization. But that exactly is the problem. That's not the church. The organization comes and goes. We have a similar problem in the church today with the Patriarchy of Constantinople. People, people literally bow down and pay homage to the institution of the patriarchate in, in, in different to or ignorant of or uh, lacking the proper love for the organism, in other words, the truth of the life of the church. And so we put the institution above the organism. We put the institution above the life of the church, the truth of the church. This is happening today around the world. Sur the so-called surgeonism is really Kesaropapism, and we have aspects of it in all parts of the Orthodox Church today. It is a, a elevation of the worldly uh, foliage or clothing of the church to its essence and losing the essence in the meantime. And there are philatists in Greece who, who for the sake of the Greek identity, the Greek people, the political establishment, whatever it might be, put the institution of the patriarchate above the truth of the gospel and above the, uh, the, the truth of what's happening in our church today, which is a diversion, a perversion, a distortion of our ecclesiology and of our understanding of Christ, who is the church. So I'm getting off topic, but it's very, all these things are applicable. If you learn these principles, you understand the church history, you, you, you gather the principles you need from these events, you will be armed to understand what's going on in the church today. Ignorance of church history, ignorance of these events, ignorance of what happened and who and what was what. You are ignorant of how to respond to church life today. Absolutely essential that you understand what's going on then and now. And uh, there's very many lessons here to learn. And he asked, uh, Andreev, and why Vladika? Did you order that a prayer for the regime be introduced into the liturgy? While at the same time, you forbade prayer for those in prisons and in banishment. 
That's that was probably the most egregious of his actions after the declaration, which upset the most people and clearly led to them seeing that he was not following Patriarch Tikhon. He was not in the spirit of Patriarch Tikhon. He had departed and had created a whole different theory of church-state relations here. Do I really have to remind you, he says, of the well-known text of the Apostle Paul concerning the authorities Metropolitan surges asked with irony, and as for the prayer for those in banishment, many deacons make a demonstration out of this. So he's saying that they've gone to excesses and they're provoking the authorities with their commemorations. And then Vladika, will you change the Beatitudes? Will you change the Beatitudes uh, as well in the liturgy? I again objected. After all, one can make a demonstration of them out of them too. Uh, I am not altering the liturgy, Metropolitan Surges said dryly. You know, his response is, if the, this is accurate, and I believe it is, point to a real blindness in terms of the spiritual life and what's going on at the time. And who needs the prayer for the regime? Certainly the atheist Soviet regime does not need it, and believers could pray only in the sense of the entreaty for softening the hard hearts of our rulers and for the enlightenment of those in error. But to pray for the anti-Christian regime per se is impossible. Really? What kind of antichrist do you find here, replied Mr. Baldwin Surgeon with a disdainful gesture of the hand. This actually reminds me of the renovationist stance to the Soviets, right? They, they, they were actually had a positive view of Soviet powers and they bought into the, at least appeared to buy in to the, uh, the propaganda of the Soviets as to their social program and all the rest. So interesting here. And this spirit of social gospel or uh, Christianity, right, we, we, we elevate the good of the world, the good of our neighbors, uh, life in the world, and all of the peace, security, food, uh, feeding of the man, all of these, these uh, uh, altruistic ideals, we elevate that above the spiritual message and, 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 and mission of the church. That apostasy is also very much alive and well here in the 20s and in our day. And this is, reminds us of the renovationist uh, positive take of the Soviet uh, uh, social agenda. Uh, and he insists, uh, Andreev, but the spirit is precisely that of Antichrist. And what called for this prayer? Did they, for, did they force you to introduce this petition? So he goes to the real heart of the thing, right? Because part of this is not, he's, uh, he's saying this can't just be an ideological question. Something spiritually is wrong with you. You've 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 subjected yourself to the uh, uh, the enemy for personal reasons, uh, and he says, "Well, I found myself it necessary." And going on, no, Vladika, answer us before God from the depths of your pastoral conscience. Did they force you to do this, as with much else in your new church policy, or not? This question had to be repeated stubbornly and persistently many times before Metropolitan Sergius finally replied, well, so they press one and force one, but I myself think that way too, he concluded hastily and fearfully. As we said, the renovationist uh, positive take on the Soviets. Uh, and why, Vladika, did you order that right after the name of Metropolitan Peter, your own name be commemorated? We have heard that this also was ordered from higher up with the intention of soon omitting the name of Metropolitan Peter altogether. 
Metropolitan Sergius did not reply to this. And in fact, his name uh, was re was removed in 37 uh, before he uh, was killed. Uh, and Metropolitan Sergius was named the uh, local tenants then. And who appointed your temporary patriarchal synod? And who was occupied? Who has occupied himself with the appointment and transference of bishops? Many bishops, forty some odd bishops, I think, were, were, were transferred within those five month period by Metropolitan Sergius. He was doing all kinds of renovation of church hierarchy as well, obviously being dictated by by the Soviets in much of that. Why was Metropolitan Joseph removed against the wishes of his father? We know, Vladika, that all this is done by the unofficial over-procreator of your synod, the communist secret police agent, Chukov, against your wishes. So they're giving him the out. They're justifying him to a certain degree and saying, you know, we know that this is not really what you wanted to do. And Sergius asked, somewhat disconcerted, where did you take all that from? And, and they answered, we know, everyone knows this, Vladika. So he he thought that maybe he had hidden this, that they didn't really know how much the Soviet uh, secret police were running the show. Perhaps he had this, this desire to act like he was really in charge. I don't know. It's hard to say. And with whom have you surrounded yourself, Vladika, added Archpriest uh, Dobronravov, the name of Bishop, later Patriarch Alexei, is enough to discredit your whole synod. I don't know what he's referring to, uh, so I'm not going to get into that, but uh, uh, it is an issue of the legitimacy of his synod and the people, as I said earlier, who were in his synod don't appear to have, any of them have, have become martyrs uh, from my research. Metropolitan Sergius stood up and said that he would think about everything. We had said and give a short written reply in three days. The audience was finished. In three days, Metropolitan Sergius gave a written reply, repeating in general and nebulous expressions the thesis of his declaration. The delegation returned to Petrograd, and in a short time, a schism occurred. To those who broke off communion with Metropolitan Sergius, the latter replied, by interdictions, the organs of the secret police cynically helped him. The members of the Petrograd uh, delegation were soon arrested and suffered terribly. The aged Bishop Dmitri was put in the Yaroslav political isolation ward for 10 years and then was shot. Archpriest Dobronovarov was sent to a Siberian concentration camp for 10 years and then the sentence was for more, it was 10 more years without the right of correspondence. I was sent to the concentration camp in Solovki and Alexiev, after becoming a priest, was shot. So that's very, very indicative of who was behind the one and the other group. The martyrs who are now glorified by God in the church. Were they on the right? Of course, they were on the right. Japal and Sergius was not glorified, but in fact, his actions are shameful and have led to many, many deaths and, dis and delusions uh, of many. Uh, timeline of events now, just to recap, so you have a sense of things, July to September 27, right? So July, the declaration goes out. 90% of parishes uh, send the declaration back in some dioceses. Uh, they receive legalization, the, the much uh, hoped for legalization. Uh, the uh, 
Metropolitan Peter in August is exiled to a village in the far north, 120 miles from Odorsk on the shore of the Bay of Oba. August 31st, September 13th, the decree of the Surgeon Synod transferring Metropolitan Joseph, who was the leader of those resisting Metropolitan Sergius, to Odessa. And then we have the response of the Solovki bishops in September to the declaration. And this is just an excerpt of a few points. The idea of the submission of the church to civil laws is expressed in such a categorical and unconditional form as can easily be understood in the sense of a complete joining together of church and state. Again, this is the great irony that they worked for, for so long to keep the church and state separate, uh, to, to not even have a legal uh, status for the church, and now they totally reverse it because they now can subjugate the church leadership. So uh, it is indicative of Kessero-Papism. This is exactly what Kessero-Papism we'll see in a minute. Uh, that is certainly a, a, a totally justifiable definition of what Sergius is doing. Of course, there's much more, as we've explained, there's much more to that than just Kessero-Papism. The epistle offers the government the gratitude of all the people for the, its attention to the spiritual needs of the Orthodox population. Such an expression of gratitude in the lips of the head of the Russian Orthodox Church cannot be sincere. And therefore, it does not correspond to the dignity of the Church and therefore cannot be made. Uh, the epistle of the Patriarchate accepts without any reservations the official version and lays on the Church the whole blame for the grievous clashes between the Church and the State. Again trying to have the scapegoat as the church abroad. Uh, and it's a total delusion because, of course, the state was the provocator of all the problems. It was the persecutor of the church again and again. The threat of interdiction of the immigrant clergy violates the decrees of the sober of 1917, well explained, which explained the whole canonical inadmissibility of such punishments and rehabilitated all persons deprived of their clergy rank for political crimes in the past. So he uh, hypocritically uh, punishes the church abroad for what he calls political crimes. And there's a clear, uh, uh, in a, the, clearly the council in 1970 forbids such a thing. So he doesn't even follow the council of 17. And he's hypocritical in his stance with regard to how he handles churches, church matters for political reasons. Of course, probably forced into it by the Soviets. <clears throat> so in September, December now, we move on. A lot going on. Of course, this goes on for months and months and months, this intense uh, situation of rejecting and reacting against the letter by Metropolitan Sergius. And the 15th of September, a letter of Metropolitan Joseph to Metropolitan Sergius acknowledging his, as uncanonical his transfer to the Sea of Odessa. In the 20th, he, the report of Bishop Nicholas concerning the disturbances in the Leningrad Diocese in connection with the transfer of Metropolitan Joseph. On the 19th, the decree of St. Metropolitan Sergius and the Synod reaffirming the transfer of Metropolitan Joseph. That's the war going now on between Joseph and Sergius. Joseph is, of course, the, the main figure that resists, uh, and Sergius is uh, interested in, in silencing him. Sergius takes the temporary administration of the, of the diocese from uh, Metropolitan Joseph. Uh, upon himself, never goes to the city, doesn't really have, play a role, uh, even though he typically uh, formally took it. Uh, the UK is a 594 uh, of uh, 
Metropolitan Surges concerning the commemoration of the civil authorities and the removal of the commemoration of the diocese and bishops who are in exile. We just heard about that. Letter of Metropolitan Joseph to Metropolitan Surges again with his refusal to leave the Leningrad diocese. Telegram of Metropolitan Joseph to Metropolitan Michael in connection with his transfer to Odessa. The transfer, which is anti-canonical, unconscionable, serving an Im evil intrigue, is rejected by me. So Metropolitan Joseph totally rejects the transfer. Uh, appearance of parishes in Leningrad, not commemorating Metropolitan Surges at divine services. This is November. Interview of the Leningrad. We just heard that we saw that. The diocese goes and meets with him. Uh, appeal to Metropolitan Surges on behalf of the clergy and laymen uh, of the diocese, trying to convince them. A reply of Metropolitan Surges, refusal to change the course of his church policy. Again, in writing to this group, he refuses to change his policy. And then there is the act of separation from Metropolitan Surges, one of many that will happen around Russia on the 13th of December, signed by Bishop Dmitry of Dov and Bishop Surges of Narva. For the sake of peace of conscience, we renounce the person and deeds of our former chief hierarch, who has uncanonically and without limit exceeded his rights. And this is the text that we just uh, mentioned. I'll read it, and then we have one more, and we're done for tonight. We're going a bit over, but it's important. And we'll take your questions. I hope you've been, you've been submitting your questions uh, to uh, uh, Timothy, and uh, he will uh, re relay them to me. So if you have questions about tonight or anything, uh, make sure you set, send them now. So, the separation of Bishop Dimitri and the faithful of Petrograd. This is the testimony of our conscience. It is no longer permissible for us, without sinning against the canons of the Holy Orthodox Church, to remain in ecclesiastical communion with the substitute of the patriarchal locum tenens, Sergius Metropolitan of Nizogorod, and his synod, and with all who think as they do. It is not our pride. Let this never be, but for the sake of peace of conscience, that we dis disavow the person and the deeds of our former hierarch, we just read that, uh, who was unlawfully and immoderately gone beyond his rights and has introduced great disturbance and the smoky arrogance of the world into the Church of Christ. This is exactly what we just saw. Very good, good description. Whose duty is to bring to those who desire to see God the light of simplicity and the tribute of wisdom of in humility from the epistle of the African Council to Pope Celestine. So he's saying you're you being like a pope. And we respond to you as, as they did to Pope Celestine. And that's quite accurate. And we decide upon this only after we have received testimony from the hands of Metropolitan Surges himself that the new direction and orientation of ecclesiastical Russian life which he has undertaken, is not subject to any change. He goes on, Therefore, remaining by God's grace in everything, the obedient children of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, preserving the apostolic succession through the patriarchal local tenants, Peter, Metropolitan of Krutitsk, we break off canonical communion with Metropolitan Sergius and all those who are under him, and until the judgment of the complete local council, with the participation of all the Orthodox bishops, or until the open and complete repentance of the Metropolitan himself before the Holy Church, we preserve communion and prayer only with those who watch the canons of the fathers, uh, who, who watch lest the canons of the Holy Fathers be transgressed, and lest imperceptibly and little by little we lose the freedom. This is the 
exactly the biggest problem that's going to be talked about by all the new martyrs. The loss of the freedom of the church. The loss of the freedom. And little by little, we lose the freedom which our Lord Jesus Christ, the liberty of all men, has given to us as a free gift by his own blood. So, very important here. He, he's looking to a future council. This is also something you'll see quite a bit. And, and, and quite rightly, they see a future council as the only organ that could judge matters as to their breaking off communion and their stance, which is aimed at isolating the delusion and not subjugating the church to the atheist. So that's Bishop Dimitri, he's a new martyr, and uh, he was the, in St. Petersburg as a suffering bishop to Metropolitan Joseph. Last one now. This is one of many, I'll, I'll quote more in the next session, but this is plenty for tonight. Archbishop Seraphim writes to Metropolitan Sergius. Now, he had been a formerly uh, a devoted admirer of his, all right? So this is, this is somebody who, who's, who's not antagonistic at all, and he writes the following. We used to suffer and endure in silence, knowing that we were suffering for the truth and that the indestructible power of God was with us, which strengthened us and inspired us with the hope that in the time God known, God, known to God alone, the truth of orthodoxy would win, for it has been promised faithfully and when necessary will be given all powerful divine assistance. By your declaration, he says to Sergius, and the policy based on it, you are seeking to lead us into a sphere in which we are already losing that hope. For you are leading us from the service of the truth, and God does not help falsehood. Terrible groans are crying, are carrying out, are crying out from all corners of, of Russia. You promise to pluck out two or three sufferers and return them to the society of the faithful. He's talking about the releasing of people from prison. I guess he had maybe hoped uh, or, or negotiated that. But look how many new martyrs have appeared, excuse me, whose sufferings are intensified even though even more by the awareness that their sufferings are the consequence of your new church policy. So right away they understood that his policy will lead to more martyrdom, not to freedom for the church. How come he didn't understand that? And if dioceses and parishes are breaking away from you and your synod, this is, this is a toxin, a terrible toxin of exalt, exhausted and believing hearts, which could not reach your heart. Uh, set it on fire with the flame of self-sacrifice and readiness to lay down one's soul for one's friends. Unfortunately, that did not help him to repent. So that's a first taste of many uh, and then this attempt at a beginning of truly understanding surgeonism, I think this is helpful, although it's not the end, end of the word at all, because the, the experience of the Russian church during this period is not just about surgeonism. There's much more to it. Uh, but um, here is an attempt. Surgeonism, the policy and stance of Metropolitan Sergi, Sergei, uh, is expressed and dictated in his 1927 declaration and subsequent church program is to begin with a new and unique manifestation of Kesaropapism, all right? So that's, that's what we're saying. It's, it's a form or expression of Kesaropapism. Not only, there's more to it, but it's mainly that. Kesaropapism is the idea of combining the social and political power of secular government with religious power, or of making secular authority superior to the spiritual authority of the church. 
It entails complete subordination of priests to secular power. This is what happened. And we can go on. Let's see. Um, in yeah, he talks about extreme forms. That's not really applicable. And then both Caesaropapism and theocracy are systems in which there is no separation from church uh, and state, and in which the two forms uh, part form part of a single power uh, structure. So again, you see, there's no separation of church and state. Ironically, a reversal of everything that the Soviets have been doing. And now you have subjugation, and you have perversion and distortion, and of course. This is the loss of the freedom of the life of the church in Russia. And many people were martyred because they refused to go along with the declaration. Uh, so the declaration itself has that terrible, terrible mark on it. Uh, God help them. Oh, my God.